Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. This morning, we're going to continue this sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. And um, I've been looking forward to and dreading this particular message since the start, because I think we've come to the point in Jesus' sermon that most people would agree is the climax. It's the peak of the mountain, and it is probably the most outrageous and unbelievable thing that Jesus says in the whole sermon. It's a thing that sounds so crazy. You get a little blessed, you're like, yeah, that's, that's good. It's very easy to agree with, and it's almost impossible to follow unless the Spirit of God gets a hold of us. And if you're preparing for your nap, let me just tell you, this is actually relevant to every one of us in this room. You might not think so at first, but I think you'll see very quickly that it is. Title of the message is Loving Our Enemies. Loving Our Enemies. And it comes from Matthew 5, 43 to 48. Let's read that. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's some powerful stuff. It obviously needs unpacking, so let's dive in. Jesus opens this sermon, or this part of his sermon, with a simple reiteration of what people were saying, what was the accepted wisdom of the day. And what people were being taught is this, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, the first part of that, so far so good, it's a direct quote from Leviticus 19.18, and there is biblical precedent for that, that we should love our neighbor in ways that are selfless and sacrificial and costly. And that much I think most people accepted. But what's interesting is, There is no direct Old Testament passage that commands hatred for enemies. It wasn't as if God said, you you also have a duty to hate your enemies, but the religious leaders of Jesus' day just accepted, what else can you possibly say to people? I mean, enemies abounded in their world just like they do today in ours. People had lots of others who they would count as my foe, my adversary. You and I, we're not okay. I'm opposed to you. I stand against you and you stand against me. That's not just true back then. It's true today as well. And most leaders were not willing to stand in front and say, well, those people who really attack you, persecute you, oppress you, be nice to them. That was a little past what most leaders were willing to say. And so they said, it's just acceptable that that's the normal, appropriate response to people who do harm to us, or who are so reprehensible, 
so beneath contempt that we can safely say we have no need of them. That was the accepted teaching of Jesus' day. And most people are like, yeah, that's totally true. But think about this for a second. That first part of the, the command, love your neighbor, it's morally good, but it's really unremarkable. All it's basically saying is don't be a sociopath. Because everybody loves their neighbor. If somebody is kind to you, it's sociopathic to be mean to them, isn't it? Like Nobody gives you a present you smack in the face and go, thanks. It's normal to reciprocate kindness for kindness, and everyone just naturally does that. So a command to do it is not really a remarkable command. And to say when people do wrong against you, when they mistreat you, dump them. Attack them back. Get your revenge. That's also very normal. What's interesting, though, is that first part of the command, love your neighbor, it seems easy enough, but even so, I think once they try to apply it, the the Jews in Jesus' day realize it's not that easy even to love your neighbor. There are a lot of people you're supposed to love that after a while you realize there's too many of them. I can't love everybody this way. I mean, just think about our church. We've got maybe 160 adults. If I said to you, you are duty-bound to selflessly love and serve all 160 other people in this congregation, and if you want to add a further burden, also love and serve all of their children. That's a huge burden. And so there was a raging debate in Jesus' day among the Jewish leaders. Who exactly is my neighbor? That's lawyer talk, right? Because I'm prepared to love my neighbor, but let's define legally and narrowly. Who exactly qualifies as said neighbor? And the motivation behind that debate was this. I can't possibly love everybody who is on my side, and so I've got to narrow the field to make this command reasonable and manageable. And so there was this huge debate that kept going on and on. Whenever rabbis got together at the coffee shop, this is what they would argue about. Maybe your neighbor is the person who lives within a three-block radius of your domicile. That's who your neighbor is. Maybe your neighbor is this, or maybe your neighbor is that. It's the person who's from this tribe or that tribe. And the whole point was, let's narrow the number of people we are obligated to love so that we could actually try to do this thing, because it's hard enough to love your neighbors. You can imagine, then, the shock everyone felt when Jesus says the next line, but I tell you, don't just love your neighbor, but love your enemies too. Add to the number of those you are called to love the very people who have done the greatest harm to you. Those people whose views, whose attitudes, whose behaviors are so deplorable that you see them as beneath you. Now, it'd be easy to shrug off this command and say, okay, fine, I will love my enemies, but I don't have any enemies. I got a lot of people I can't stand. I got people I'm annoyed by. I've got people who, when I see them on the street, I cross the other side of the street. I'm like, I'll just avoid you. But I don't know if they're the Lex Luthor to my Superman. The word enemy seems so dramatic. You know, when somebody's murdered, it's typically part of the investigation that the police will ask the surviving friends and family, did the deceased, did the victim have any enemies? And whenever they ask that, I I always thought to myself, hmm, if I get killed, do I have any enemies? Like, who are the, the suspects? That, because enemy seems like such a dramatic category of person. 
When's the last time someone walked up to you and said, you, you and I, we're enemies. See, it's easier to shrug it off and say, okay, I will love my enemy the first time I actually have one. But I think this is more commonplace than we realize. I think everyone in this room right now has enemies. Our enemies come in different forms, but I think we have enemies at at least two levels. I'm, I'm going to talk about that quickly. Two common types of enemy. The first is ideological. That's very common today. You don't know them personally, per se, but what they believe, how they look at the world, what they think is true is so detestable that you can't possibly imagine there's a human being behind that idea. It's so ugly, it's so counter to everything good, that when you think about that person, you cannot conceive a person. You see a foul idea and a carbon-based shell for that foul idea. That's all you see is an object that is worthy of contempt. I think we have a lot of that kind of enmity in our society today. There are so many divides that are tearing the fabric of our country apart across different kinds of lines, and the people on either side have no intent, no desire to reconcile or understand. All they want to do is to say to the other person, you're wrong. Don't you ever get sick of it after a while? I mean, I've had to take fasts from social media because I'm just so tired of the noise. Everybody's shouting and nobody's really listening. And in the end, after all the yelling, nobody changes their mind. What we do is multiply the hatred and the anger and the negativity. We reinforce our own views. But in the end, the other side is only further dug in. And so are we. Do you have enemies of that kind right now? People that because of what they stand for or who they voted for or how they view an important social issue, you say in your heart, thank you, but no, I'll pass. I don't need to know you as a human being because I don't believe that's what you are. Your views speak for you, and you and I have nothing, no bridge to cross. Now, maybe it doesn't get quite as strong as all that for you. Maybe you're on your road to that level of fanaticism. But the truth is, I think in our society, there are a lot of people that we look at what they stand for, and we think, no, no, I don't think we could ever be friends. And then there's another kind of enemy, the personal enemy. This is not a a people group or a, a, a school of thought. This is a human being who intentionally stood against you in some way. They caused you pain. They betrayed you. They stole from you. They physically harmed you. They cheated you. They broke your heart. Many times they did it knowingly. Sometimes they did it just because they were selfish pigs and they didn't care who got hurt in the collateral damage. And sometimes, if we're really humble and honest, our personal enemies are not even people who did anything that bad to us, but we are just disappointed that they didn't measure up to what we needed them to be. Or there are people who said things to us that we were not ready to hear. They challenged us about a thing that was sacred to us, that was not something we talk about. And because they took the risk and broached the subject, They were categorized as enemies. I don't know how we get there, but a lot of us have a person or or two or 20 who we count as personal enemies. That you and I, and the way we deal with personal enemies is twofold. Either we engage in a longstanding, aggressive feud where I will hurt you and then you will hurt me and we'll just keep doing it. 
until one of us is dead. That's one way people deal with their personal enemies is, oh, well, it's my turn. And then when they get one up on you, you plan the next volley of missiles. Or another common way to deal with them is to say, I eject you from my life. Erase, erase, erase. Delete. You no longer are a person to me. I will cut you off. I won't answer your text or your voicemail. I've had people do this to me in my years of ministry where I cannot. It's so frustrating because I can't even get them to answer me so I can apologize. They just delete me from their universe. Has anyone ever done that to you? Unfriended you from everything? Blocked you on their phone? They don't even get the alert when you try to reach them because the technology today lets us digitally erase a person from our lives. Maybe the reason you don't think you have an enemy is because all your enemies are deleted. It's the way that Rick Funk used to always say, we don't get snow in District 211. Because every time it snowed, these guys would be out at four in the morning plowing, and this, this parking lot would be clear. So he, he was kind of a funny way of saying, but we don't, we don't get snow in District 211. At first, I'm like, yeah, you do. You, everyone gets snow. But then I got what he's saying. I don't have a problem because I erase the problem as soon as it hits the ground. And maybe that's the reason some of us are led to believe that we don't have enemies is because when you run a fall of me, I delete you. I erase you from my human experience. Pause for a moment. And I want you to think about whether this applies to you at all or not, this sermon about loving our enemies. Do you have an enemy of any kind today? Don't raise your hand or shout out. I don't want to know. I, I, for all I know, I could be one of them. <laughs> Do you have enemies, ideological or personal? People with whom you have a serious problem and very little motivation to reconcile or have any kind of human relationship. Here's what Jesus says about that. He says that when you love just your friends or the people who are like you and you hate your enemy, that's very human, but there's nothing of God in that. You don't have to be morally good or religious to do that. Mammals do that. Wolves will tear apart another wolf, but one from their pack will walk right through the middle of the camp. Even mindless mammals treat each other this way. It's not remarkable at all to love your friends and hate your foes. But he says if you want your love to bear a reflection of the love of our God, and that's what he really means, that you may be children of your father. How do you know? I was joking with the seed teachers this morning about this. But I always thought it would be fun to have a high school or or college reunion where instead of you going, you first send in your kids and everyone guesses, whose kid is that? Wouldn't that be fun? Like if if some of us, we parted company and then 20 years later we got back together and we could tell whose kid was who because invariably children who are born of a parent will bear that. And even the ones who are adopted, it's unbelievable, the mannerisms the facial expressions, the little turns of phrase that every child learns, children bear a resemblance to the parents who shape them. And what Jesus says is if you want your love, your impact on the world in any way to resemble and reflect the love of God, this is where it's going to be seen, is not in how you treat your friends, but how you respond to your enemies. 
That's the only time that the love truly becomes visibly divine because all the other loves are very human, very mammalian. I, I think Frederick Buechner, a theologian and pastor, said it very beautifully. I quoted him about two and a half years ago, but you probably all forgot, so I want to remind you. He says it so powerfully. He talks about climbing a mountain of love, each kind of love more difficult than the last. And here's what he says. The love for equals is a human thing. A friend for friend, brother for brother. It is to love what is loving and lovely. And the world smiles. The love for the less fortunate is a beautiful thing. The love for those who suffer, for those who are poor, the sick, the failures, the unlovely. This is compassion, and it touches the heart of the world. The love for the more fortunate, that's an interesting one, huh? The love for the more fortunate is a rare thing. To love those who succeed where we fail. To rejoice without envy with those who rejoice. The love of the poor for the rich, of the black man for the white man. The world is always bewildered. By its saints. And then there is love for the enemy. Love for the one who does not love you, but mocks, threatens, and inflicts pain. The tortured's love for the torturer. This is God's love, it conquers the world. I think Beekner is right. And what makes love divine? is the ability to see past the evil that people do to the humanity and the image of God that still remains buried underneath. The love of God is like this. And Jesus very openly says that God, he causes his son to rise and fall. He causes the the rain to come down on everyone equally. That the love of God is a love that is for every human being he's ever created. And his yearning, his heart's desire is that every person he's ever made will find their way home to him. Although many will not, that is his heart's desire. I'm reminded as now a parent of young adults and teenagers what it would feel like if my child ran away from home and got lost in some very self-destructive ways. I had a friend in ministry whose daughter did just that. She left the home at 16, went through some really, I mean, I don't want to give all the details, but it was the worst possible thing you can imagine without her dying is what she went through, what she did to herself and to other people. And I remember in his heart, he had no confusion about the wrongness or rightness of the choices she was making, but his heart ached for her. Underneath all the calluses she had put on her own heart, he saw her humanity, and it was still his, his daughter. He loved her. He longed for her. She, she has not yet come home, but his heart still beats for her. And that's the love of God, even for those who are living in wickedness, whose views and actions are so deplorable, we can hardly imagine a human being lives in there. What does it look like to love your enemy? Well, at first, it begins with the decision not to objectify them, 
not to label them by a category, but to realize even in the midst of this horrible worldview, underneath all that disgusting stuff is a human being made in the image of God. And if I'm going to have any kind of impact on that person, I cannot just shout at them or beat them down. I have to see the humanity that exists underneath. Now, we need wisdom. If you are a person at risk and somebody is after you to do physical violence, it's wise to avoid them. I wouldn't hold that against you. But if we're going to have any connection with our ideological enemies and with those personal enemies with whom we can safely engage, I'll tell you this. You can't do it unless you decide to look for the humanity underneath all that ugliness. And then Jesus adds this to the picture. He says one of the ways we actively love our enemies is we pray for them. I don't know about you, but I found that when I actively pray for someone, I'm seeking their good. When he says pray for them, it doesn't doesn't mean, Lord, I pray that they will trip near a manhole that's open and break their neck. I pray for lightning. No, it's not like that kind of prayer. It's a prayer that seeks their good, that says at the very least, Lord, Help them to see what is good and right. Change their mind. Change their heart. But it also says to them, Lord, promote their health. Give them a long enough life to come to their senses. And I found that when you pray for someone, it becomes harder and harder to maintain your hatred for that same person. I think it's hard enough for us to pray for our friends. But man, Jesus is raising the bar and he says, when you have someone you're tempted to hate, it is divine to bend the knee and pray for the very person who you want to hate. And as you pray for that person, the person that changes most is you. And it begins to reshape the way you think about that person so that if God's going to reach them, he can actually start to do it through you. But when we don't pray and our hearts remain hard, there is virtually no chance that we will be the instrument God uses to touch that other person's life. He also says this. If you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? And that word greet, don't think of it as this, what's up? You know, this is is what passes for a greeting, I guess, today. You see, especially teenage boys, I love it. They're so cool. It's like three millimeters is about the extent. That's it. I say hi. I did. I did say hi. More like that. Greeting is more than a small gesture that says hello. Greeting is this. It says, I see you. I acknowledge your existence. A greeting is not a relationship, but it's the first step across the, the void. It says to a person, You know, because you can walk in and just be all about business. All of us who serve on staff, it's like that. You come into church, and we're not really at church. We're at work sometimes. It's like, I got got to do this. And people get so hurt by pastors like, last week you walked right past me and didn't say hello. I didn't even see you. I'm just, I'm on a mission. I'm here to work. And the greeting says, I don't just see background scenery. I see you. The idea of a biblical greeting is, I opened a bridge between us so that should we choose to cross it, a connection is possible. 
We all watched in horror at the events unfolding in Charlottesville. We live in a world today where if you don't come out and make a public statement, no one knows where you are. That's sad to me. That in something as black and white as what happened there, people have to stand up and publicly declare how they feel because there was no doubt in my mind about right and wrong there. I speak for the entire leadership of our church when I say that the racist views of those who marched, albeit legally, is morally reprehensible. There's nothing redeeming about racism. Nothing. And it doesn't have to be a certain color that's racist. There is nothing redeeming about racism in any shape, in any form. We grieved at the violence that broke out, at people who lost their lives and their health. We're frustrated and disappointed that our president and the other leaders did not do more to unite our fractured country. We're very saddened that the, the nation remains as divided as ever. That in this photo you see of people clashing, there was not one story I read of anyone on either side changing sides or saying to the other, you might have a valid point. In the midst of all this noise, a colleague pointed me to a TED Talk that really struck a deep chord with me. How many of you saw the TED Talk by Theo E.J. Wilson? Anybody? Just raise your hand if you saw this TED Talk. Okay, so I'm going to write up a uh, Monday recap of this message And in it, I will put all the quotes and excerpts and links that I'm referencing. So you don't have to write all that down. Um, Tomorrow or Tuesday or Wednesday, depending on how this week goes, you'll get that in your inbox, okay? But Theo E.J. Wilson is an African-American man who realized that, yes, his views on race occupy the moral high ground. Without a doubt, he is right in what he believes about race. Not just because he's a black man in America, but because what he has to say is absolutely right. But he also realized something else. He realized that he lived his whole life in a digital echo chamber. That everybody he interacted with was on his side of the issue, repeating and reinforcing the same views. And everyone on the other side was a mindless moron whose views we already have figured out. I don't need to waste a a second of my day listening to that garbage. It's all garbage. There's no value to it. And he realized, if I'm going to honestly hold my position, I can't live in an echo chamber. I've got to have the courage to step out and actually see the other side, to for a moment glimpse the world through their eyes, whether it's misinformed or not, I can't honestly hold my place without doing that. So he did something very interesting. He signed up for a lot of these alt-right websites undercover, as Lucius25, I think is his handle. And he masqueraded as a white supremacist hate monger. And he blended in with these people. And he, listened. And he said at first, it turned his stomach because some of the open hatred and really what you're getting on the news, as disgusting as it is, is cleaned up. What you're getting on those sites is the raw feed. And he said it was very hard hearing some of that. But as his heart adjusted... In fact, what he would admit is it kind of got numb. After a while, you stop feeling it because it's just so much. And he started to listen to what these people are saying. Now, at no point does he say they were justified or right, but here's what he said that so surprised me. 
He said, what I started feeling after a while, which is really unexpected, is I realized that their pain and their anger and their fear is real, even though it's totally misguided. It's real. They're not acting, because this is all their own people, they're not acting scared. They are scared about the future of their race in this country. They're angry that people demonize them for being what they cannot help but be. I'm a white male, and that is Satan at this point in our country. At least those are the words he used. If you're white and you're a male, you're Satan today. And he said that was the anger he felt, and as a black man in in America, he can relate to the anger and frustration of being demonized for what you were born as. You can't help but be this, and that's fueling a lot of the anger. And here's what he said. I didn't have enough compassion to actually say you might be right, but he had enough compassion to say I was surprised to realize these are misinformed but real human beings expressing real feelings. And he created in him, his own words, an unexpected compassion that allowed him to stop objectifying those on the other side and begin actually having a dialogue that started working towards repairing some of the wounds in these communities he worked in. I'm going to send you that link. I want to encourage you to watch the whole talk because it was courageous and inspiring. And I think if more Christians lived this way, we'd have a huge impact in our society. How does a guy like Theo Wilson do this? How does someone like Jesus have the audacity to suggest that what is godly is to love our enemies? I mean, a moment ago, I asked you to pause and think about who is your enemy. If they're going to debate for, for decades about who is our neighbor, it's worth a couple minutes to really think, who is my enemy? And think about that person right now and how you honestly feel about them. The emotions it stirs up in you. Some of us have left no doubt. We've publicly proclaimed, if you believe this, you and I are done. Now picture that person or those people. How can God possibly say to us, love your enemy? This is why Because God crossed that exact same divide. In fact, Paul reminds the Romans that the only reason our friendship with God was restored ever was that while we were still very much God's enemies, Jesus crossed that divide. He made a bridge. He opened that connection up. And that's the only way we could be restored to God. I know that's a familiar idea. If you've gone to church for more than 30 days, you've heard that several times. It's so familiar, it starts to numb you after a while. But an interesting thing happened to me this past week, okay? My brother, who's on sabbatical, envy, 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 is just sitting around. No, he's not. (laughs) That's just how I like to. He was clearing out a bunch of stuff that he had meant to get through for years, never got time to. One was this corner of his office where he had gotten boxes of memorabilia we had stacked up in my parents' home, our childhood home. And he was going through the box and realized half the stuff he grabbed was my stuff. So he brought me a box of my memorabilia. And in that box was a journal from when I was a junior and a senior in high school. My diary. 
And what's so fascinating to me is these diaries contained entries from just the months right before I got saved. I got a window into the person I was in the days just prior to my salvation. And the vacuousness, the shallowness, the self-centeredness, the stupidity I saw in display. <laughs> there's, a, there's actually a, a podcast where people go to nightclubs and bars and read from their childhood diaries and are mortified. I think that's the title of the podcast, Mortified. Because when you read what you thought and felt as a teenager, you just realize, oh my gosh, no one was home. And, and here's the thing. It wasn't just empty and shallow. There was a very clear stream of enmity towards God. I, as I read... It's just very fresh for me because I saw the person God saved in August of 1984, and he was disgusting. I knew it before. I said it, but to read it in my own words, to be so indicted by my own pen, and I thought, God, if you saved me then, if you looked at me then and loved me, I got a long way to go to understand just how you love. If you have a diary from before you were saved, I recommend you read it. It will remind you again just how great the love of God is. When Jesus tells us to love our enemies, it's because that's what we were when he first loved us. There's not one of us who started life as the friend of God. Every last one of us was his enemy. And he did something unexpected, and he crossed the void and opened up a bridge. I want to end with a story, if that's okay. Today in our culture, in our society, one of the greatest divides we see is between the LGBT community and those who hold to a traditional historic view of family and sexuality. It's one of the most passionate divides I see in our country And it threatens to tear us apart. And I'm not just saying out there in the world, I'm saying even in here, people within the church are not all on the same page on this issue. And it's very, very strong, the gap that exists now between the two or four or eight sides, however you want to see it. It's one of the clearest gaps or divides that separate people. And several years back, one of the lightning rods in this divide was a man named Dan Cathy, who's president and chief operating officer of Chick-fil-A. So Dan Cathy and his company, Chick-fil-A, were lightning rods in this divide, and I think understandably so, because the choices they made as a company were very public and very obvious, and it added to the ongoing national debate. At the height back then in 2012, at the height of the controversy surrounding Dan Cathy and Chick-fil-A, Mr. Cathy did an unexpected thing. He decided to cross the void because he realized that as much as he had a certain historical, biblical view on all these things, he didn't have a real meaningful relationship with anybody who represented the other side of it. Not at all. He had people working for him who were part of that community. He had people he knew about, but he didn't have a relationship, a real relationship with anybody on the side that he thought he needed to rescue America from. 
So he did what I think was actually very courageous and unexpected, and he reached out, and the way he did it is he reached out to somebody named Shane Winmeyer. And Shane Winmeyer is a, was at that time a 40-year-old openly gay man in a committed gay marriage who was a founder and leader of an, a movement called Campus Pride. It was one of the leading protest movements and solidarity movements in the LGBT community on college campuses across America. And they were one of the organizations very vocally opposed to and protesting Chick-fil-A and everything Dan Cathy stood for. And so he decided, if I'm going to know somebody, that's the guy I want to get to know because he has left no doubt how he feels about me, but I don't really know him at all or why he feels as strongly as he does. So he reached out with a tentative first phone call. I don't know if you could put yourself in Shane Winmeyer's shoes, but to get a phone call from Dan Cathy, you're like, what is happening? And he was expecting that the guy's like, I'm going to get my lawyers on you. And he didn't know what was going to happen. Dan Cathy is worth like almost $4 billion. The dude is powerful. But he said that first phone call lasted an hour. And then it became a series of text messages and more phone calls. And the connection that was forming was so real and so attractive to both of them, it ended up becoming a series of face-to-face meetings. And what began as an awkward, tentative series of first contacts blossomed over time into a real, genuine friendship. And I didn't read this this story written by a Chick-fil-A publicist. It was actually written by Shane Winmeyer himself. And he wrote it, he published it in 2013 in the Huffington Post. And the headline was basically my coming out as a friend of Dan Cathy. <laughs> this is his second coming out because it was a huge risk for him to openly admit he had any kind of relationship with the enemy. And it was a huge risk for Dan Cathy and the constituency he was supposed to represent to consort with the enemy. They both ran huge personal risks. And when their relationship became very public, it actually had the very opposite effect of what they predicted. Yes, there are, there are fools on both sides who would really be disappointed if peace was made. Because they earn their living on the hatred that is fueled. They want to concede no ground. They don't want to hear. They just want to be heard. And there will always be those who will be haters and cynics. And look at that as a big publicity stunt. I see beauty in what happened in this story. And I'm so grateful that it was Shane Winmeyer who wrote it and not a Chick-fil-A publicist. <clears throat> Here's a picture of the two of them when Mr. Winmeyer was invited on New Year's Eve 2012 to be a guest of Dan Cathy in the owner's box, or I mean in the, in the uh, sponsor's box, and then later on, on the sidelines at the Chick-fil-A Bowl, an event which Campus Pride had all these plans to openly protest. And they stood on the 50-yard line and cheered on this football game. And he said, everybody who saw us had no idea the real story that was playing out right in front of their eyes. And in this really heartfelt article, here are a couple excerpts that really moved me. Describing the early conversation, he says, never once did Dan or anyone from Chick-fil-A ask for campus pride to stop protesting Chick-fil-A. On the contrary, Dan listened intently to our concerns and the real-life accounts from youth about the negative impact that Chick-fil-A was having on campus climate and safety at colleges across the country. Dan sought first to understand, not to be understood. He confessed that he had been naive to the issues at hand and the unintended impact of his company's actions. And later in summary, he says this, through all this, 
Dan and I shared respectful, enduring communication and built trust. His demeanor has always been one of kindness and openness. Even when I continued to directly question his public actions and the funding decisions, Dan embraced the opportunity to have dialogue and hear my perspective. He and I were committed to a better understanding of one another. Our mutual hope was to find common ground if possible and to build respect no matter what. We learned about each other as people with opposing views and not as opposing people. And he's very openly acknowledges at the end of that, that open letter, his coming out, that he's not going to change his views, and Mr. Cathy is very likely not going to change his views. But they no longer have the capacity to just demonize the other side because now that other side has become a human being with whom they have actually engaged in real relationship. Abraham Lincoln once said when someone protested he was being too friendly to the South, He said, do do I not destroy my enemies when I turn them into my friends? Now, I know that the views and the actions of some are very hard to get past. I know that. Some of us are right up front, front row seat to the brokenness and ugliness at society's fringes. It's not easy to ignore what I can see with my eyes. But behind every bit of ugliness still remains a human being made in the image of God who our Heavenly Father values and longs to reach. And his plan to reach those people is us. There isn't a plan B. It's just us. And if we're going to reach the world with anything that looks like the love of God, we've got to cry out to him, help me learn to love my enemies. Help me learn, God, to love both the evil and the good the way you do. Because I don't think I could do it on my own. I'll finish simply with the words of Paul in Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.